Welcome to the voice of family business on Capitol Hill. It's great to have you with us. With each podcast from Family Enterprise USA, we bring you the latest news, expert opinions, and insights affecting the country's largest employer, the American family business. If you like this series, please remember to subscribe and sign up for the alerts as future shows are posted wherever you download your podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Silker Henderson Properties, the leading medical office provider in Silicon Valley. In this episode, we bring you a lively and in-depth discussion with our host, Pat Soldano and Sarah Hamilton, founder and chairman of Family Office Exchange, and Margaret Steen, editor of the FO Pro, the Family Office Professional Newsletter. They will address the many current issues affecting multi-generational family businesses and family offices across the country. Now, let's listen in on what these experts have to say about the state of our country's multi-generational family businesses. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Pat Soldano, president of Family Enterprise USA and Policy and Taxation Group. If you don't know who we are, we advocate for multi-generational family businesses, successful individuals, and family offices from around the country and from all different industries. Today, we're here with Sarah Hamilton, founder of Family Office Exchange, or Fox, and Margaret Steen, editor of the FO Pro, the Family Office Professional Newsletter. If you're in the family office business or the family business, you work with uh, my two guests. I'm sure you're very familiar with both of them. And they have a lot of information that they're going to share with us today that is something you need to know. Sarah is the founder of the family office industry, in my estimation, which has seen dramatic growth and change since its founding some four decades ago. She is the founder of Family Office Exchange, or FOX, which provides education, resources, and consulting to many, many, many family offices. We also have with us Margaret Steen, who is the editor to an exciting new online newsletter, the FO Pro, which is part of the Family Business Magazine and MLR Media. One of Margaret's jobs is to chronicle the latest trends and developments in the family office industry. It's good to have both of you with us today. Thank you. So we're going to do something a little different with this podcast. I'd like to begin by laying the groundwork for the discussion by Sarah giving us a brief history of the family office industry and and where it's headed. And I'll add my thoughts as I think it's necessary. And then I'm going to turn the podcast over to Margaret for her to ask Sarah and I questions that she thinks maybe this audience would like to hear. And at that point, she will be the moderator of the discussion. So, Sarah, let's start. Please share with us your 30,000-foot view level of the family office industry. Thank you, Pat, and thank you for your nice comments about my work in the industry. Perhaps the best place to start discussing family offices is to hear what Fox members have told us about what they value related to their family offices during COVID. We surveyed many of them and there were both tangible and intangible benefits that they named that were important to them. I'm just going to read you what some of those are. The, The organizer of the family's complexity, the orchestrator of the complete picture of what we own, our financial risk manager, a strategist for seeking, helping us look at new opportunities, a protector of both personal and data security. These were the tangible side of the benefits that can be quantified. The intangibles 
were even more valued by our members. We heard things like providing peace of mind, promoting family engagement, reinforcing our family values, protecting our family's reputation in the community, and serving as a sounding board for each household when they have challenging questions to address. The goals for each family, without a doubt, determine the family office roles and goals that are established. And families are very diverse in what they're trying to accomplish. This is what has led to that familiar adage, if you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office. And here are some reasons why that is. For some business owners, they're very much focused on the wealth when they set up a family office. Some say, make sure you don't lose my money that I work so hard to generate. And others say, I want you to double my money in the next 10 years. These are very different types of offices with different types of talent needed to run them. Other business owners are more family focused. You hear things, you hear them say, I want this family office to help keep my family together and watch out for their safety and their well being. Or I want the family office to support the family foundation that resulted from our success and to help the family implement my vision of what to do with that philanthropy. And some business owners want a family office that supports and enhances the entrepreneurial spirit that got them where they are today. This kind of family office might serve as a coach and a mentor for the rising generation, and they might help the business leaders analyze different ways to diversify away from the original business industry. So we've seen a lot of change over the last four decades, as Pat mentioned, and priorities have shifted over time as family groups mature and understand what they are about in better in more ways. In the 1980s, I would say most of the energy in our industry was focused on sustaining the business, understanding what would move that business forward. And the adage was what's good for the business is good for the family. At the end of the 80s, private equity started buying out family companies and liquidity wave created a lot of focus on sustaining the wealth. In the 1990s, this focus on sustaining the wealth was translated by how to diversify the assets and how to transfer wealth in the most tax efficient manner. But what we found after about 10 years as some of the founders of the offices started to pass away, was that if the family members had not been prepared to be responsible owners who valued the office, it didn't matter how good the family office was. It would all disintegrate over a period of time. And as a result of that, in the 2000s, more attention shifted to sustaining the family and defining how much wealth was enough wealth in the family. Risk management was one of our key topics because of the volatility in the financial services industry in general and the concerns it created. And in the 2010s, families found it challenging to manage the volatile markets, the growing family, 
and the growing complexity of the family, and the talk turned to finding better ways to manage complex family enterprises. At Fox, we developed a 40-factor complexity profile, which helps a family understand better what makes them so complicated and what type of office is needed to serve that degree of complexity. And today in the 2020s, there is a lot of focus on an even bigger question. What kind of impact do we want to have with our wealth? And how will we support the health and well-being of the family members? These new conversations add some new challenges related to the talent in the family office. And I think I'll stop there. Pat, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, and we're going to talk more about this. So I really appreciate uh, Sarah giving us the, the history because excellent history. Her and I have been through this industry together. And just so the, the listeners understand, I started in a single family office, the Field family, and then grew my own multifamily office business and sold it to GenSpring in 2009. What I see during that time period is exactly what Sarah articulated, only she sees it much more than I did. She has much more experience with single family offices than I do. But I also saw the evolution of the multifamily office because people of lesser wealth wanted the services but didn't necessarily have the wealth to have their own single family office, or they didn't want another business. So the multifamily office emerged. It's it's different today than it was back then, but I think it was an important business model for the future, serving the people that I just talked about, as well as others. So I know we're gonna we're gonna get into more of that conversation as well as other conversations, but I'm gonna turn it over to you and I'm gonna ask you to to ask us the questions that you think are pertinent. Okay, thank you. So first, I have a question for Sarah, which is that many family businesses think that they need a family office. Some of them create one by embedding a family office inside their family business. Can you talk to us about what the indicators are that would lead a family to think that they should have a family office, how they know how they know when they should create one? Yes. Um, why don't we look at that question in terms of generational stages, because what you might need really is changes and evolves as you move through the generational stages. In the, With first-generation families, um, they often want to get financial affairs organized in a private structure that's outside of the operating business. So the primary trigger for moving family office-type activities out of an operating company and into a standalone family office structure is to retain the privacy of the family members and the assets that they owned. The founders often want to refine their estate plans during this stage. They may need help educating the next generation about trusts that have been set up and how to conduct the big reveal meeting with the children where everything gets explained to the next generation. The second generation siblings in a family have different needs. They may need help getting their own households, financial plans in order. They might want a better explanation of the ownership picture than they've gotten from their parents. And they may want to get help with all the getting all the siblings on the same page. 
regarding decision-making, educating the next generation, and what direction they're moving in as a family. And when you get to the cousin stage in the third generation, the cousins group may need help uh, as young people with budgets and cash flow planning. They certainly will need help understanding the trusts that have been set up and what the role of the beneficiary is in relation to those trusts. Some of them might need some career coaching to figure out exactly whether they uh, should apply their skills inside the family enterprise or on the outside. And they may want specific training if they're launching entrepreneurial ventures of their own. So all the family members need assistance at different times in different ways, but they all need help reaching agreement on their shared values and the future vision for why they're staying together and where they want the enterprise to go. They want to understand how to control the complexity that is ever evolving in the family and that comes with the success of moving from one generation to another. Thank you. Pat, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think in terms of the family operating their family office from a family business or separate organization, I can think it work either way. And Sarah and I have had this conversation. Many times the family office starts in the operating business. And that's why you ask the question, you know, what about a family office embedded in a family business? Because it just makes logical sense. They've got someone in the business paying bills for the company. They can certainly pay their bills. They've got somebody handling insurance. They've got somebody doing tax returns, maybe investing some of the money. And so the professionals in the business can help manage the personal assets. The times that I've seen that that not work so well is when the professionals are overlapping into both areas and they get conflicted in terms of what's more important. Is the personal assets more important than the business? And where do I put my time? And I think sometimes the personal suffers because the, the business gets the first you know, priority in, in, in many cases. But it's, it's very, very common to have that. I'm not saying it can't work. It certainly can. Um, and then the business may get so big and the family may get so big or so wealthy or the liquidity becomes so substantial. They need a separate set of professionals. And sometimes, you know, that's when the, the single family office would get formed. So that's why I think for, for us as an organization, family businesses overlap so much into the family office space because we have many families that have both. They may have it again embedded in the family business or they may have a whole separate organization run by a whole separate set of professionals. And then you ask the question, well, what, what, what are those, what is that family always going to do for the family? Well, as Sarah just eloquently articulated, it depends where the family is in generations. It depends what services they want, uh, you know, and hopefully they've defined what their values are and what their, their mission is. But I think it really can be everything from a full surface, comprehensive family office to kind of an a la carte, we're going to do your tax work and we're going to do your investments, but we're not going to do anything else or, or whatever. There's all sorts of models, as she just said. You know, if you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office. Yeah. One of the challenges of being trying to run an office from inside of an operating business is you invariably get pulled into family business issues and strategy development and analysis. And it is often difficult for the family office team 
to to get around to the actual family office work because the business is taking priority. So deciding at some point when this pull and tug is in place that it's time to move the office outside the operating business and set it up separately is done to protect the family and to protect the activities related to financial security that are not connected to the success of the operating company. Pat, you mentioned a full-service family office, and that leads kind of to my next question, which is, what are those services? What If you have a full-service family office, what are the typical services that they would be providing to the family? And are there, maybe there isn't a one typical list, but what is the the range of types of services that a, a family could consider when they're setting this up? Well, so, I would talk to this from the standpoint of a multifamily office. Sarah can speak to it better from a single family office, but there's certainly very, very similar business models. Um, it, you know, as a multifamily office, we would offer full service comprehensive, I would say soup to nuts, bill pay, accounting, cash management, taxes, insurance, estate planning, philanthropic management, governance, education, everything the family needed to take care of their personal financial assets, be it businesses, be it liquidity, whatever they needed. Um, this And some families just wanted everything. They wanted someone to, to make sure everything got coordinated, which is, I think, a huge value of a family office. So things didn't slip between the cracks. Or some would say, well, I want to do this part, or I want my outside professionals to do this part, and I only want you to do the investments and, let's say, governance and education. I am going to have my tax accountant do my tax return and my and my bookkeeper do my bills and my cash management and those kinds of things. But I want you to do all my financial planning and and those. So I think it really can be anything. And, and they are very different. And they're very different uh, in terms of the services, mostly driven by the needs of the family. And as Sarah articulated, the, the generations of the family, right? Because different generations, and we'll talk about that later, want different things and different kinds of services. I think it's also helpful to think about the life stages of the family members who are being served by a particular office because it varies and it evolves with time. Young adults who are getting launched in their own life need help with basic financial planning services like budgeting, car leases, apartment leases, career selection, 401ks, that kind of thing. Young married couples need help with house purchases, merging financial accounts, planning a budget together, managing their time schedules. Um, and when the, the children arrive, even more help is needed related because time is precious. So you, they need help with bill paying, cash flow management, tax filing, second car purchases, uh, all kinds of different challenges surface. Middle-aged couples, in the 21st century are, are sometimes dealing with divorce and blended families issues, which require more tax and estate planning to cost sometimes be redone, buying vacation properties so the kids will come to visit, and then collecting art and motorized toys can take up a lot of time uh, for those families, as well as contributing philanthropically in their local community. And the older family members, as many of our elders, are reaching 
periods of time where they're not independent have completely different needs. There is more time spent dealing with elder care services, legal documents that need that relate to the end of life, and sometimes estate settlement projects are tremendously valuable activities that the family office can coordinate. So the structure and the services of the office will evolve over time. And it's always important to hire individuals who are adaptive and flexible and understanding that the way it is today might not necessarily be the way it is going to be in 10 years. It will be forever changing. Thank you. What is a typical cost structure for those for these services? Um, what can families expect to pay? And obviously, that will depend a lot on which services they're getting. But for a family just trying to figure out if this even makes sense, what could they expect to pay in fees? And related question is, what is the typical structure of a family office? You mentioned how that will be evolving, but what are some structures that they could be thinking about when they're thinking about setting this up? The, the structure question relates to both ownership structures and actual management structures that the family may be related to. Often, the family office itself may be owned by a trust. It might be owned by a younger generation that actually creates this. Maybe it doesn't get formalized till the second generation, and they are the actual owners and investors in this type of a business. The information related to cost, we have just finished our benchmarking survey that we do every other year. So I was just getting an update on what the numbers look like. And this year, we pulled information from 150 family groups. The average investable asset pool at the median of the data pool was about $365 million of assets that were managed. It was seven households, 12 family trusts, and 80% of the assets were held in trust. So those are some of the complexity factors that impact uh, what it costs to actually run the office. And the important thing for owners to know is there are three parts to the cost of managing wealth. One is the actual cost of the office itself. The second layer is the cost of the external advisors that are helping you manage activities that on average, there are families, uh, offices deal with 28 to 30 different external advisors every year. And they spend about a third of their time engaging in the conversations with those advisors. So family members don't have to do that. And the third dimension of overall cost is everything related to investing the money. So the fee that's linked to managing $365 million in this past survey was about a million and a half dollars of investment related fees for consultants, custodians, money managers, the all in cost of taking care of that wealth. The office itself cost another million six. Uh, in this particular case, our average family office had about six people in it. And the the fees from the external advisors like accountants and attorneys and other resources like that was another $300,000. So the total fee 
for managing 365 million all in was 3.35 million dollars. So roughly just shy of 1% of the asset base itself, which is has been fairly consistent for the last 20 years. You know, if you have full service and dedicated resources, they are spending about 40% of their time on planning activities that help the family move everything forward. About 40% of their time is related to implementing the plans. And 20% of the time it's related to educating the family, creating the governance and providing a an operating structure, organizational structure that is efficient in the way it takes care of activities. Thank you. I had another question uh, just to clarify some terminology. You both have been talking about single family offices and multifamily offices, and you've given some good examples, but just to clarify for listeners exactly what those are, can you give us the, the definition and maybe some pros and cons why people would choose one or, over the other? Yeah, we we talk about this in our the private wealth management course at the University of Chicago, which teaches families with new liquidity how to manage their wealth and uh, what all the language is that they need to work with. And we have a specific course in there about the the pros and cons of setting up a single family office versus the pros of, of going with a multifamily office. So multifamily office is organized around a team of people who serve multiple clients. So they, a typical MFO might have three or four teams of people, four people on a team who are taking care of different clients. So they have in that model, better backup. They have more resources to throw into a senior position to take care of a family if someone else were to leave the organization. They typically have more powerful technology because they're they're doing financial reports for a much larger base of clients. And they can get relationship pricing in the marketplace for their pool of clients. So when they go shopping for a money manager, they may be actually picking a resource that's going to work with five different families inside their own individual structures for doing that, but they have more purchasing power than when you go to market by yourself as an individual or in your own dedicated family office. On the on the single family office side, the big advantages are the family crafts the vision and sets the priorities for what's going to go on. The, the service level is defined by the people who own that office. By definition, I would say they are more responsive to the needs of the family. They're getting back in an hour instead of getting back to somebody in a day. The family is totally in control of all the information. It's much more private if you have your own office. and But the office can pay for itself with their ability to get better purchasing power for all the clients of the office. Um, with instead of the individual households going to market and shopping separately. 
So there still is good group purchasing power in that model. Thank you, Pat. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. So at first to address the kind of MFO in terms of the fee structure, it's not that much different than a single family office, but MFOs bill in various ways. Most of them would bill on assets under management or assets under advisement. Um, But it's possible to go to an MFO and not have investment management. And so you then might pay a retainer fee or you still might be billed on some sort of um, asset base. Uh, Some have a hybrid model where you have a retainer fee and assets under advisement or even some, not too many, but some charge hourly or project based. So there are some MFOs that have three different areas. You can be, you know, all inclusive. You can be just family office, which doesn't include investment. Some there's just one one model and not all three models. So you really have to decide for you what makes most sense. But it's not a surprise to me that Sarah said the cost is about 1%. As she said, that's been that way for over two decades. And I don't think it's going to be much different all in with a multifamily office either. I, I agree with all of her advantages of a multifamily office and a single family office. I think that some people just don't want to have a business to run and run it running a family office is absolutely running a business and you have to be dedicated to that and if the family is dedicated and sometimes certainly after they sell the business and they just have liquidity they want to stay together as a family they want to have an operating unit and a family office is an operating business and a unit so it gives them a way to stay together as does typically their family foundation so i think both of the models work and people have to decide with a lot of, I think, counsel and help what makes most sense for them, you know, as a family. Yeah. We wrote an article 20 years ago that said the family, creating a family office is starting a second family business. And you do not want to go there and take on that responsibility unless you are absolutely sure you're going to be paying attention to what goes on there because there are risk elements to owning an office if you're not paying attention. Thank you. I wanted to ask now about a couple of investment trends that we're seeing. One is that family offices today are doing more co-investing with each other than they have in the past. And another one is that many are trying to diversify themselves away from a single asset or one large holding. Can you tell us a little bit about these trends? Sarah, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I can distinctly remember when this trend started to shift in 2010 uh, among our Fox members. It was really triggered by the meltdown in the mortgage market in 2008 and 2009 and families who had been very comfortable uh, investing in real estate, deciding that they really wanted to move away from the public markets and start putting their money to work in other middle market operating businesses. They like the idea of sitting on the board and sharing their expertise and their insight and helping another family company be successful. And today, over 60% of our 330 members are involved in majority-owned or minority-owned investments in operating companies, and the average number of co-investments they have made, possibly with another family, um, in our benchmarking surveys, is about 12 different ventures that they're putting some money into 
the enjoy tagging along with other families who have industry expertise that they don't have. They like being able to contribute the skills that they've got. And they like the strategic advantage of being able to stay in for the long term and not being forced to deal with a five to seven year cycle, which is typically the turnover in a private equity fund. So they want to go in and take a long-term view and get out when it's optimal for the business, not when it's optimal for the private equity firm. Yeah, it's interesting to me that it's kind of like women's fashion, right? I mean, all things eventually come back around. <laughs> when Sarah and I started, it was direct investing, right? Everybody wanted to direct investing. Then that those words went away, and now they're back in vogue. And, and she's absolutely right. I mean, I hear that from all of them now. Just put me in touch with somebody that I can do deals with because we want to co-invest. And I think that's very exciting. Uh, I all For all the reasons that she's articulated, they want to do business with other families and they feel like, you know, as that they have more buying power and they, they have a different vision. They have that long-term time horizon, which is so important. I have some concern, even though it was truer back in the nineties than it is today, that maybe they're not getting those super duper A deals um, because they're not, it's all about the deal flow. And are they getting that deal flow? Is all that deal flow going to the institutions before it gets to the families I think that's changed somewhat. I think that they're the families have become more, much, much more sophisticated in their structures and in their investing skills and techniques and their contacts and realizing the importance of where their deals are coming from and creating a good deal flow and creating uh, an organization within their family office and hiring the talent to get those you know best deals. And and as she already talked about. Um, discussing that and working with other families uh, to create, you know, the best deal possible. Yeah. The other challenge related to um, doing direct investing relates to how involved the family is and how big the team is that is supporting that on average 12 different operating ventures that need 12 board members to be participating. Often, the definition of long-term for the family is longer than the definition for the private equity team that is sitting in-house. And they're going to want to realize some of the gains because in many cases, they are participating in the upside on those ventures as a part of that private equity team. And they're going to have an instinct inclination to sell uh, sometimes sooner than what the family has. The, the other big challenge that we are seeing now, may, for, with many of our members, the founder of an operating business that cashed out has been very active in doing this since 2010. And for some of them, they're reaching a stage where they're thinking about pulling back and not being an active investor personally anymore. And this is a, gr a great challenge and fear for the second generation that works with that active investor. They don't have quite the same level of training and experience that the active owner um, has had over the years. They've, they've learned some of it along the way, but um, they may not have the confidence of all their siblings in terms of the next person in charge being 
it being comfortable with the siblings that they're as experienced as the original investor. And so um, how the family's going to manage the ownership or sale of those 12 operating ventures when the active investor is gone will be one of our biggest challenges in this next decade. Thank you. And that brings up another question about a generational challenge. Pat, can you talk a little bit about how the needs and desires of the next generation of family business leaders and family office clients may be different from what their parents had wanted and uh, how that is affecting the family office operations? Yeah, so Margaret, you and I had this conversation a few weeks ago. And Sarah and I have talked about how this industry is going through really a transformation and the next generation is really perpetuating that and this humongous transfer of wealth that's occurred to that next generation. Um, They think very differently than their parents or grandparents when this industry started. The services are different because, uh, first of all, with technology, right? They don't need somebody to be paying their bills. They're paying their bills on their phone. They don't need somebody to do their tax return. They're probably doing their own tax return and using the software to do that. Uh, They're investing while they want the input and the ideas from an investment team. They want to make sure they're going to also change the world. They want to make sure whatever investing or whatever they're doing with their money is something that's going to make the world a better place. Uh, So their, their investment strategies can be different. The tool is going to be different. The way they look at their investments. They want them on their phone 24-7. They're not going to sit in a conference room with a PowerPoint and a team of investment professionals. Mm -hmm. So I think the model needs to address that. And, and, And then Sarah can talk about this in terms of how AI is going to play into this as well. I mean, it's, I think, a huge change that single family offices, if they're still being run by the founding family or maybe even the second generation, may not be focusing on. And Certainly, I think the MFOs, the multifamily offices are struggling with that because they want new creative investment ideas. And I know that some multifamily offices actually lost some of those next generation because they're kind of unwilling to venture out into some of these very unique investment strategies that really cater to the needs of that next generation. So I think people need to really focus on how important they are and the changes that they're making. And if they don't, I'm not sure the business model, it's not going to survive the way it was formed two decades ago. If it doesn't evolve, I, I I don't have a lot of hope for it. I certainly believe in the industry and I think it will evolve. But I think people need to really, really focus on the changes that are happening driven by this next gen. And so, Sarah, you should speak to this in terms of your view, which is much deeper than my view. I would um, agree with you wholeheartedly about just absorbing so much change by any family office team is challenging. Keeping up with a young person's interest in Bitcoin or chat GPT or a variety of other activities that have never been a part of an office is very challenging. I do think the the world of the internet creates a a greater sense of confidence in many young people that they've got it all figured out. And there is the risk that they are not actually getting the best advice or making the best tax decisions because they are inclined to do it 
to be do-it-yourselfers, and they're not, they can be more gullible to the pretenders who are out there, who are bringing them into deals that are not well analyzed because they don't have that training. They they certainly have a much greater social media presence. Some family offices today have a website that promotes themselves and who they are and what they're interested in doing, especially if they're involved in direct investing. So they have greater personal security risks that are potentially impacting them as they are traveling globally and moving around the world and co-investing with families in other countries and doing the due diligence side of it is much uh, more critical um, because some of these uh, co-investment partners are not living in countries where they're regulated entities and they don't have any oversight on that. So it just uh, keeping up with the younger group is a key part of the challenge and finding talented individuals in the office who like that kind of a challenge. Uh, it, we're, we're not living in a world of keeping track of records and focusing on who owns what and turning reports in at the end of the month. You know, we're dealing with real-time reporting status and people being being very comfortable making decisions very quickly and sometimes without even getting any advice from the individuals who are there to help them and learning the hard way to a certain extent. Thank you. So Sarah, as you look at the the really broad picture of the economy, society, politics today, how do you see the family office of the future? What are the challenges that you see ahead? Yeah, well, I'm uh, very much focused on this topic right now because I'm I'm running a session at our members forum in October at the end of October on uh, anticipating changes that are coming in the industry and thinking about what are we going to do about those changes. So there are many themes that uh, have turned up on my list, um, but I'll name just a few of them to hopefully expand everyone's thinking about this. Um, there are a lot of changes related to demographic trends. The family office of the future is is today taking care of four different generations of owners instead of three. And at some point, it may be five uh, generations of owners. We are dealing with blended families and multiple layers of ownership and different dimensions that relate to that. Um, we have uh, elders who stay active much longer and finding a rewarding role for the elders to play that can support the enterprise is one of our topics at the forum this year. There, I believe that the, the, the actual nature of the role of the family office will be shifting in this next decade. You know, we have been a, um, we came out in 2005 and said the primary role of a family office is to be a good risk manager and to watch out for what can go wrong. Uh, because it's hard for family owners to see what the downside could be and to focus their priorities in the right way. Um, and I think in the 21st century, problem solving will move in a very different manner. The, the ability to 
deal with the unknown, explore alternatives in a fast-paced world, and make decisions effectively when you don't have all the data is a very different type of skill set than anything we've used in the past. It will certainly require new ways of thinking about new kinds of problems that we're all going to be facing. Um, and the, the degree of disruption that we're all going to be dealing with in this next decade related to artificial intelligence and industry changes that are occurring and global polarities that are existing all over the world are going to dramatically affect the definition of family sustainability, I think. I think we will have more active owners and investors um, than in prior years, um, and they will need more information and more timely information, uh, more strategic advice uh, coming from the team that they work with, whether it's about Bitcoin or space travel investing or managing asset classes that we've never even heard of to date. Um, certainly, artificial intelligence applications will be able to automate routine tasks in a family office. It can help you find good advisors uh, by working in a network like Fox uh, through an automated function. And um, we can provide analysis. M much of the analysis will be focused on future alternatives rather than historical patterns of data that tell us what worked well in the past. So being open to change uh, in reporting procedures will be a big challenge for staff members who are embedded in the status quo and they like doing it the way they're doing it today. And so making sure you're hiring very flexible, adaptive people to work in the offices and who are embracing technology and making it, um, using it for its best applications will be critical uh, in the future. The staff members you have today will need new skill sets. Uh, so training on more strategic issues, faster problem solving, new ways to do, do things, collaborative teams, looking at alternatives that we've never looked at before, people who like a blank whiteboard to start with, who are not afraid to deal with the unknowns and the uncertain uh, part of things. And, and those individuals hopefully will be able to coach the family to get more comfortable living in a changing world that is very fast paced, you know, um, anticipating, I'm, I'm spending the greatest majority of my time with advisors thinking about what can we do to help families embrace change and understand it is the wave of the future. It's what we're all going to be dealing with. We can't get buried in the status quo uh, because we're not going to be able to accommodate everything coming down the pike if we're not open to change and innovation. Thank you. Pat, what, what can you add to that? Well, since, you know, I work in Washington, D.C. and advocate for family businesses and successful individuals in this country, including family offices, 
I see the challenges all revolve around change in legislation and regulation. I'm very concerned about proposed regulation changes that could happen at the Treasury without Congress, like elimination of valuation discounts for family-related entities, which has been on the table many times before and could come back. I'm worried for family offices around the transparency uh, legislation that's already passed and is still being talked about, where you know the privacy of families is just being divulged to everybody on the planet. Uh, and families are private, be- not because they're trying to hide anything. They're private because they're trying to protect themselves just out of sheer safety. Um, the audits that are being done by the IRS of anyone that makes you know four hundred thousand dollars or less, they're asking for copies of your trust documents. You know, I mean, and they're allowed to do that. They're at, they're asking for things that they've never asked for before. I'm concerned because the voters in this country, seventy percent of them believe in a wealth tax. They don't even know what a wealth tax is. They don't know what wealth is. They don't even know how to define wealth. But they just believe in that because, you know, they think it's a, it's a good thing. And, and so we have been trying to get members of Congress to understand the harm that some of this legislation can create. And at the same time, we need to educate voters. Things that affect our family businesses that most people don't read about um, this last year, elimination of R&D expensing happened. That means when we have manufacturers, huge manufacturing businesses that stopped any R&D because they can't expense it anymore, they have to capitalize it, dramatically changes their bottom line. Or elimination of accelerated depreciation, which we know so many family businesses need and use, again, to perpetuate their businesses from one generation to the next. Um, all these things that to most people may not seem significant are very significant to family offices. And we, me personally, I think that we should promote success in this country, not demonize it. And unfortunately, I really feel like that's what's happened is it's becoming certainly bad to be wealthy. Uh, we don't even use that term anymore, but it's, it's, it's almost wrong to be successful. And I hope that's not the case. And I hope that this next generation still, you know, is ambitious enough that they want to be successful in this lifetime. And we should inspire that, not, not, not discourage it. Very well said. It's so, so true. So, Margaret, I'm going to take back the moderator position for a second and, and close this out. But before I close out the podcast, I want to have a closing question for you. Uh, and I think a lot of people are probably asking this question. So I want to know why MLR Media and Family Business Magazine decided to start FO Pro, the newsletter. Thanks. That, that is a good question. Um, the reason is that we have been seeing an increasing number of families in our audience for the magazine and for the events who have some sort of family office. And when we started looking at the family office ecosystem, we noticed that there wasn't a lot of information out there that could really help both the families and the family office professionals navigate their relationships. And this is a longtime strength of Family Business Magazine. We have always covered subjects like succession planning and conflict resolution and how do you 
get your cousins together to run the family business. And there didn't seem to be a lot of coverage of those types of topics uh, around family offices. So, but yet they have a lot of the same questions, even without an operating business. You know, what do you do when you and your 15 cousins have different levels of risk tolerance and yet you're supposed to be investing together? How do you negotiate that? Um, I think the topic of educating the next generation came up earlier in our conversation, and that's another important one. Anyway, we decided to take our deep expertise in these family relationships surrounding business and apply them to family offices. And so that is the, the gap in the ecosystem that we are looking to fill. Well, well I will mention that, Margaret, we've been gathering best practices and looking at these issues for 33 years now. Mm-hmm. We have probably 40,000 articles about family office topics on our website. The information is is available for sure. We've an online family office design course that helps somebody think through all the critical dimensions of starting a new office and how would you do it? And what would you need to know? And where do you hire people? And all of that. So we'd be happy to be a resource for you on uh, getting the word out. If you all aren't aware that the material is out there, you could help us get the word out that there's definitely a body of knowledge there that goes way back. We have a professional guide to the family, to running the family office that is totally focused on all of these critical dimensions that will be updated this year. Oh, great. That That's great. That's great. And we should definitely uh, talk further about that. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, and I would echo that Family Office Exchange has, as you said, spent 33 years. It's, it's an amazing, amazing resource for all family offices and all families out there. Uh, and I think everybody should take advantage of that. Well, this has been a very lively and interesting conversation, as I knew it would be. I want to thank you, Margaret, for taking over as moderator for this podcast. And I want to thank you, Sarah, so much for your excellent insights, as I knew they would be. It was a lot of fun. And I know our family office and our family business listeners appreciate the insights voiced here today. We hope you liked today's show. And if you did, please subscribe to our podcast, where each episode discusses the critical issues affecting multi-generational family businesses and family offices around the country. You can find this podcast wherever you download your podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's Family Enterprise USA podcast. This is the only series devoted exclusively to the critical issues facing America's family businesses, the families that own them, and the clients of family offices. We hope you liked this episode. Please make sure to subscribe and tell others about our podcast. Having your voice heard in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country can make a difference. This podcast is sponsored by Silker Henderson Properties, the leading medical office provider in Silicon Valley. This podcast is sponsored by Kilker Henderson Properties, the leading medical office provider in Silicon Valley. If you have any additional questions, please contact Sarah at shamilton at familyoffice.com, Margaret at msteen at thefopro.com. That's M-S-T-E-E-N at the F-O-P-R-O.com. And Pat at patsaldano.com. We look forward to having you listen in next time.